Hello there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, conversations, analysis and dispatches from the front lines of storymaking. If you haven't yet signed up to the Storymakers Institute on Substack, then you're only getting half of the story. Receive podcast episodes, written analysis and exclusive dispatches on storymaking straight to your inbox and Substack app feed. For all the details, head to the storymakersinstitute.substack.com. Today on the show, we're going to welcome Green Room Award-winning creative powerhouse James Jackson, who for the last two years has been working with me and the team at The Space Company on an incredible story, the story of 500 pilot whales that turned up on the west coast of Lutruwita, Tasmania, and how a small town community went to try and save them. And in this episode of the show, we talk about how the story came about, what was involved in the writing of the show, and all the things we learned to do and not do ever again. We should just spend this whole interview just sitting here, sipping tea, like... This is the Storymakers Institute <laughs> with Joel Carnegie. <laughs> this is like... <laughs> oh. We're just making, like, wave sounds. <laughs> well, I thought we should chat. Um, and I thought we should record this chat for people who... I want to know a little more about what the hell we've been doing over the last two years. In particular, a show called Hell's Gates, which is coming up soon at the Geelong Art Centre, 10th to 12th of August, 2023. Buy your tickets, Geelong Art Centre. And also streaming worldwide via the Australian Digital Concert Hall. So if you want to know more about that, uh, Australian Digital Concert Hall uh, is uh, where you need to go. AustralianDigitalConcertHall.com to buy a ticket. So you've done the plug now, so I don't have to worry about mm, it anymore. You don't worry about it. You can chill. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, just shut up, Joel. Well, you'll have to do it at the end as well. Oh, we'll do it end. at the end, yeah. <laughs> um, what is this story about for you? I think it's about how a catastrophic event changes the trajectory of people's lives. So when the event occurs, i.e. The, the whales get stranded en masse, um, and the town comes together to try to tow them out and fix the situation. It's not without, it, it leaves sort of, maybe not scars, but it does, it does have its imprint on the three characters in our story and probably the whole town to, to a greater or lesser degree that I think pivots the trajectory of their lives towards something new, something else. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think it's about the, you know, what's that What's that thing about there are only two stories, somebody leaves town and somebody comes to town. And I think this is, this is probably somebody comes to town, but it's not somebody, it's 500 pilot whales and it causes a change, a shift. Mm. And just for context, uh, for those um, who may not be aware, in 2020, 500 pilot whales rocked up on the west coast of Tasmania. Uh, to the south of the mainland of Australia. And uh, on the West Coast, wild and rugged country it is. Uh, an extraordinary part of the world, uh, which, and where we are kind of located at this moment is not ourselves right now, but, you know, the story is kind of located uh, really at the on the edge of the world to a certain extent, based out of a small town called Strawn. And, uh, and this was where the whales turned up two years ago. And there was the challenge, there was the task to try and work out what to do next. 
with them. So over the last couple of years, James and I uh, have been working on this show. We've spent lots of time down in Tassie. I think we've met most people in town, <laughs> certainly a fair number of them anyway, as well as lots of other people who are involved in the stranding across Tasmania. So I feel like we've got a pretty good handle on the on the story itself. But how has the process of telling this story changed you? Hmm. Uh, I don't think I will uh, write solo again <laughs> um, in the, to, in a, as a practice. Um, I think that um, definitely the times when we've when we've collaborated to create the script itself have have been more efficient. Um, so in that respect, I think it's definitely changed how I approach storytelling um, to a degree, or has sort of made me realize that collaboration is always better than sitting alone and threshing it out yourself. I think that given the nature of the interviews that we conducted and, and the fact that, you know, so much of this story was built off transcripts and other people's perspectives, um, it was always a bit of a collaboration, but I think it's easy to forget that uh, if you then put aside the transcript and then try to write the play as if it's something completely separate. It was certainly a real challenge, I think, from sort of having this material and then trying to place that into a theatrical context while still holding true to the original story and yet wanting to create a kind of based on a true story in a way fictional retelling of a true event. Like there's a lot of things that are going on here. Yeah, absolutely. I, and and, and it, it is really difficult to work out the balance between what you make up for the benefit of the story and for the benefit of like the characters because you do want characters that are... Um, that feel real and have backstories, but you also don't really want to necessarily bring in the people that you interviewed directly. Um, so you, you know, because some of the things that they said uh, or some of the opinions that they had about the town or about the events or whatever, um, uh, they might only share, might've only shared with us actually wouldn't want, a wider audience to to understand or like you know to receive that and so uh yeah that finding the balance between how much of this character is fictionalized and how much of the drama are we making up versus actually what happened and the drama that did occur that was a real challenge and especially when you're in a town of a few hundred people where everyone invariably knows everyone um the points of view you have in the position that you have in the town there's only so many people doing the job of, you know, insert profession here. So it kind of means that there's nowhere to hide for those individuals that we've spoken to. And therefore, you know, in those long ongoing conversations we've had with with all of them, it's, um, it's kind of been important to us all to be able to, um, in a way, elevate them and the story into that sort of fictional realm while still kind of remaining true to the facts as well as the really funny stuff and some of the really tragic stuff as well that they uh, shared too. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, and then of course, it's also about not making things up that, you know, like the first challenge is making sure that you can't identify the real person through the character. And then the second thing is making sure that um, 
if somebody did identify that character, the things that we make up in the story that actually never happened, but are just there for dramatic effect or are a heightened version of what happened or are actually someone else's story that we've just put into this character doesn't cause a fracas um, uh, or doesn't cause, yeah, as you said, any issue. I guess um, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk to us in a couple of weeks. <laughs> when half a town comes like screaming at our doorstep, yeah, with pitchforks, <laughs> and I don't know. But I don't think so. I, you know, I, I, I um, it's it's fun to it's, it's sort of fun to to um, to joke about. But I, but I do think that the locals in Strawn are like they're also extremely robust and mm. have a, have such a such an extraordinary sense of humour. Um, Robust uh, more than most people I've met, I think. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, not yeah. taking life too seriously, even though they're in this extraordinary situation where they're it's so far away from main centres of population. Yes, there are of course other towns that, uh, that are scattered across that region on the west coast, but but these collection of towns don't make up that larger percentage of a population. So a few hundred here, a few hundred there. You know, it's a very different way of living than being in a city where you've kind of got the so-called security of having hundreds of thousands of people around you at any one given time. But I guess the beauty of being being in a small town is that everyone knows you, and so there's security in the in the fact that it's a strong community. Yeah, and I think they're ex- they're extremely resilient, uh, whether or not they would even admit that they are. <laughs> you know, because they're 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 a modest bunch. Um, I think that some something about the sort of person who would who who moves down there, and, and then the sort of person who lives there, um, and then the environment and the town, um, and the sort of ecosystem of that place, uh, breeds really resilient people, really strong people. One of the trips that we went down there um, was one that you took as a solo trip, where where you really got right up and close to the situation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened when you? Yeah took that solo trip because this is really important yeah so so i think what happened so 2020 on the 21st of september was the 500 pilot whales and then 2022 on the 21st of september were a couple hundred more pilot whales and i think you called me and said have you heard about this another mass stranding two years to the day um and you sent me like write down and sort of just like drop everything and run. Mm. Um, and I remember that when I flew into Burnie and I got one, one of our local friends picked, picked me up and then taught me how to drive manual, which was very weird from Burnie to Strawn. Um, from, from that point, it was almost like the, dr- there was like a dreamlike quality to that experience. And then when I, um, when I saw what was going on in the town, and saw and spoke to some people that we knew in the town from previous journeys down. Um, it only heightened that experience, that bizarre uh, otherworldliness. And I think it was a quality of the energy that was that was in the town at the time, because it, I didn't get to see the whales that were stranded for a day or two, because um, the agencies had closed off the heads. They didn't want people. Uh, just coming up to any old whale and they had to take control of the situation. But ultimately, um, I, I did. Ultimately, I did get to 
get to the beach and see the whales. And I did get to um, be on a tinny with when they were towing them out to sea, the, the deceased ones out to sea and lashing them together in a daisy chain. And uh, I, the experience was not quite a nightmare, but like, like a fever dream, like a hallucination. And I only woke up once I was on the plane in on the way to Melbourne, basically. So something about the the rupturing of of the event and seeing the event and talking to people who were dealing with the event um, led towards a kind of otherworldliness. Like I, I was on an alien landscape, and I mean it didn't help the fact that the West Coast is quite an alien landscape. Like it it really is just diff- unique. Um, so. So that, that was my experience of that stranding. And uh, there's just something so profoundly bizarre uh, about seeing, you know, 100 or 150 pilot whales lined up by, by forklift on a beach, um, almost in ascending size or descending size, you know, like structured and ordered. It just, it, I think it rattled me a fair bit and took me quite a while to come to terms with as something that actually happened. And even now I'll find those pictures on my phone, be they of, you know, 30 or 40 whales being towed by a tinny when the rope snapped or just four or five live whales in a harness being, being moved by some giant um, crane like, you know, Tonka truck machine. And even now, it's like, oh, did that happen to me? Was that something that I saw? Did I really experience that? So I can't imagine what it would have been like for the parkies and the marine agency and the fish farmers to experience that and actually have to do something. Because as an observer, I was just there. I didn't actually have any responsibility, which I appreciate can can also bear its own challenges because you can't do anything um, and you do you do want to. But I can't imagine what it would have been like for those people who are rescuing them um, and the, the urgency of time and the challenge of the barometric tides and the weather, hypothermia, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. Without wanting to compare the writing of a play with the actual requirement to deal with 500 pilot whales or in the second case, some 200-odd pilot whales, 250-odd pilot whales um, at you, without wanting to compare those experiences, I have been thinking that there's a certain aspect of the the events that have somehow, like the qualities of those events have somehow infiltrated through the writing process and the kind of mammoth nature of the process of writing this story and the, the trials and the tribulations and the, and, the, and the real challenges of writing this story have in some way mirrored the actual events. Is that something that you would agree with? Yeah, to a degree. I could see, I could see where you're going with this, I think. Um, you, you definitely relive the events when... Um, when the when you're when you're writing the events, I think that's true of fiction as it is true of nonfiction. Like you, you kind of have to, you kind of end up imagining them. They they infiltrate your psyche, in a way. Um, but I did feel a, an obligation to those people 
that we had interviewed and those people that we knew that, and that we know to tell the story right, you know, to, to, to not take it into a bizarro realm, which is where I, I feel comfortable as a writer. I feel very comfortable in the weird, the, like the weirder it is, the better. Um, but in this instance, you know, there's only so much weird you can put into a story like this, I think, without um, removing some of the essence of what, what it's actually about. There was thousands of words that I would have written that th I ended up throwing out when eventually I just cracked it and said, well, what's the simplest version of this story? And what's the simplest way that it can be told? And that was it. It's funny. And maybe you had to do all of that work in order to kind of get to that point. But it's almost like when that, you know, when that draft came through, it was like, yeah, cool. We've got this. Like, you've got this. This is good. This is this. We're on the, we're on the sort of the way, way home now. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes you have to take the long route to get to where you started. And um, whether or not that will change anything, I'm not sure. Uh, but it was sort of a fun journey anyway. Going on this, you know, especially with the three characters. So there are three characters in the play and they are they started as archetypes as the, the park ranger or the parky, um, the cop and a fish farmer. And uh, they, I guess, were very, very, have become very, very loosely based off some of the people that we spoke to. And we've, we've changed the, you know, we've turned... You know, the person who was actually the cop into the person who was actually whatever else, you know, we've, we've swapped the career, like the uh, occupation and the character quite a bit. And we've merged a couple of people that we interviewed into one character and we sort of have changed, have moved all of that around. Um, and I think that going on that long sort of arduous journey where there was a version of the script that was this very, very poetic, um, like uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, grungy work. Um, all of that was actually character writing. Like that was really writing me working out who these characters were. And the way that I find most productive is not so much to sit and plan it, but to just write the voice that I hear when I hear that character speak and just let that go to wherever it should go. And I think that um, once you've done that, you can just get rid of it and it will hopefully infiltrate the, the simplest version of the story. So I guess those earlier versions of the script weren't actually the story. They were character, sort of character Bibles um, uh, rather than, rather than a, a piece of drama, mm. uh, which is what ultimately the show needs to be. Mm, mm. Also reminds me of perhaps some of the process that we went on in terms of the, the interviewing aspects of, of all of, all of this and the way in which one person led to the next, to the next, to the next, it was kind of, it was quite an organic experience. Um, as, as we found one person that led us to others and, and on and on that, that sort of process went and to be able to then get that full picture of the whole story uh, to then dilute that into, you know, then the actual writing process itself. So in a way there's kind of a mirroring of, of, <laughs> of things that were going on here, you know, to try and get the full sense of who is in the room with you. 
um, and to build on all of their perspectives and then be able to go, okay, cool, what can we take out of all of those conversations that we've had with lots of different people and then what is the kind of essence of it? So I think that actually that was done in the research process as well as in the writing phase too. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Um, There's just so much material to sift through and there's also a lot of contradictions. I mean, there were contradictions left, right, and said that people misremembering slight things or people remembering things being significant that weren't as significant. And um, we don't know. <laughs> That's the other thing. We we don't know what the objective truth is. And so trying to, for me, try, trying to sift through what's significant, what's insignificant without doing injustice to something you know, someone's experience and something that they thought was really important. That's, that's, that was a huge challenge as well. The other aspect of, of this too is that after all this research and this writing, then we bring a whole group of people together uh, to actually make this into a theatre show. So Katie Maudlin has come on board to direct the show, um, Emily Collette in set and costume, Richard Vabre on lighting, Justin um, Gadem on sound and Zanny Kolak uh, who is uh, who's who's writing and and performing uh, music uh, on her violin and all of the extraordinary ways that she creates sound on that instrument and so it then kind of elevates the whole thing to a different level because then you've got uh, a whole bunch of new ideas come into the room about the way in which this is presented based through the lens of very sort of specific forms of storytelling. Yeah. I think that's, this is, this is where theatre really comes into its own. Like um, this is the juicy part. This is the good part. This collaboration is sort of where the, the act of writing the work begins for me. Uh, it doesn't begin in the script. The script is a, is a, is, is nothing without, you know, the rehearsal process and then the performance. And, you know, as I always say to myself, the script is only ever written in performance, which is to say, like, it's on opening night, that's when the script gets written because it gets written in the minds and eyes and hearts of the audience. And the whole thing can be torn up and thrown out between now and then, which is a great comfort. And... Like the magic of theatre for me doesn't actually happen in the performance. It happens when all these brains come together in a room and start picking apart the work and and adding and embroidering their themselves into it. And that's what makes it come alive. Um, because the script until then is a scaffold. Like it's it's actually nothing. It's kind of easy in, to conceive of it just as, as the shape of a building, not the building itself. And then when people come in and start populating it, you know, decorating it and putting the walls up, which I guess probably they do before they decorate it, um, the whole thing changes. I mean, that's when you know whether or not the thing that you have is worthwhile or not. Everything leading up to that point, you only have hints, like little suggestions that this might work and some ideas that you you are attached to and some that you don't think work. Um, so... I'm looking forward to, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and I, I'm very excited to see what happens to the structure, what, you know, what happens to that scaffold and how much it changes. Because I've never been precious about that. It's definitely just something that I fully expect to tear apart and rebuild.
mm. um, for for also for the personalities who are working on it as well. Mm. So, and and I think that I think that that parallels our experience of writing it in the first place because we 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 are stuck between having to write it for the people of Strawn and the people that we interviewed, and having to write it for the performers and the creatives who who are creating it and the audience well yeah or are they or are the audience the performers and the creative stuck between us and the audience because they have to <laughs> they sort of are stuck between the script that we're trying to create and then what they want to do then what they want to do for the audience so yeah you could be right so you know or, or it's much more complex than this and everyone's you know, <laughs> everyone's involved <laughs> well it reminds me of the 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 philosopher Levinas who talks about being held hostage in the other's gaze. And I think in the creative process, to an extent, we are all sort of held hostage by each other, but in a positive sense, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're sort of locked into something here and there's no way that we, there's no way that we could escape without quitting the project and we wouldn't want to do that. And so we, we're constantly enacting this, these ne- complex negotiations with the work through the, or through the work with each other through the work. And then sometimes just with each other directly. Like, I wonder if that's actually a, a, f- a fundamental element of telling a story like this. We have an obligation to so many people to create a thing which does multiple th- other things socially, you know, they have, has social functions and has these effects and that's what creates a story about a community it, it's it, that gets performed to a community and created by a small community it's that kind of complex web of negotiations and relationships that um that you enact every single day and we're sort of telling that story in a way we have to kind of live that and there's always um different ideas that kind of come up through the creative process that you then want to explain and explore with people. And then people will kind of give their thoughts on that and then there'll be pushback and then someone won't like it. And then someone has another idea. And then sort of like, you've got all these ideas that are kind of colliding with each other, um, sometimes ricocheting off in different directions, sometimes not going anywhere, depending on what it is. And I think then all of those influences, whether they're about the script and the telling or whether about other influences, you know, whether it's film or TV or other kind of ideas, other things that you experience through the process of making that then kind of infiltrate the project in some way, because you're like, oh, wait, that's, that feels connected to this project. So I'm going to bring it in uh, and then have the tussle about whether it, it stays or not. Yeah. And you had to be super comfortable with um, not solving everything then and there. I mean, that's, that's my weakness. I always want to solve it right away if there's an issue. Um, but you really have to get comfortable with sitting in the ambiguity of um, not quite having a solve yet or, or you know, even the ambiguity of negotiating with, with another person when they're like, oh, no, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't quite right or, oh, this is, I don't think my, I don't think this makes sense in terms of the plot or this doesn't really make sense in terms of that character but I don't have a solution, which is the most annoying thing. <laughs> but then like things will come to you like two weeks later um, and you're like, ah, that's right. Hey. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder, I've, I, I've often wondered whether or not, you know, the brain obviously processes things without us being conscious of what it's processing. But then I'm sort of asking, 
I would often, I just often wonder whether those solutions that the brain pops into your head two weeks later, or sometimes, I mean, there's definitely been works when it's been like two or three years after the show's closed, the solutions come into my head and I've gone, <laughs> oh, that would have made it amazing. Um, but I do wonder where that comes from because I, because you're not consciously working through it because it's a subconscious and maybe even a spiritual thing. Um, when those ideas pop in, they feel so right, don't they? They're like so perfectly formed. They're like little nuggets of gold or, or pearls uh, that you you sort of pick up in your from your conscious mind, and they always feel so spot on for some reason. And then the the question is, well, maybe I mean maybe I shouldn't evaluate this because I'm going to ruin it for myself. But how do I know that that was the right solution? You know, because then I might present it to somebody and they'll go, "This is crap. This is the you know the worst idea I've ever heard." What do you mean you want you want to you know I don't know throw jellyfish at the audience or something? Um, <laughs> hey, it's a good idea. Um, <laughs> but but also like there's the, there's an enthusiasm that comes with this sort of this brainwave that then you have to then try and convince someone else of their kind of that that thought and and bringing the excitement through to them and getting them excited about it and sometimes they just don't and then you've got to deal with that feedback of kind of like was it a good idea or do I keep pursuing this because I feel like it's so important that I don't want to let it go um, or was it a terrible idea you know it's that's true I, I that's a really good point the good the good idea in um quotation marks here the good idea carries with it an energy that that impels you to or like compels you to tell someone and like, or, you know, tell the right people and do something about it. And then if they shoot, if somebody shoots it down, um, it can be, have a really deleterious effect on your, your like mental hygiene. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I do think that that's a component of the good idea though, um, that it gives you energy. It fuels you. Um, and if you, if you follow through with it, there is a point when it just feels like you're taking a lot of correct steps and I think with this project, especially the very, very early days of this project, it didn't it didn't feel like we were taking the right steps until you hit upon you hit upon this event. And then it was mm. from that point on, every step we took in the creation of the work, you know, of course there were some missteps that I did, but you know, that's just my journey. Um, felt felt right. Like and not in a self-indulgent way. It just felt easy. Like it was this was the right thing to do. And that's the same as when we were in Strawn interviewing people for the first time. It did just go, oh, go to that person. And then that person says, oh, go to that person, that person, that person. And it just felt like it kind of it kind of unlocked, maybe not unlocked because that suggests there's something behind a door or something. But it, but it, but we were willing to amble through that landscape and kind of find our own way through it. And um, when we when we took an approach of relaxed beingness or, you know, almost a day reeve to sort of wandering through town, seeing if there was, if, if, if there were people there to meet and engage with or things to see. And we just sort of didn't put too much of a hierarchy on it or too much of an objective on it. And we didn't see it as a, something to be conquered or whatever. Like we just sort of put ourselves in that position and then just were there. Um, it all just sort of came together, I think, magic, as if by magic, even though obviously there's a lot of work there, but it kind of has that that that, that rightness to it. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's 
what you experienced. It's absolutely what I experienced and, and something that, um, that is, that's actually a sort of fundamental part of, part of my work anyway, which is, which is kind of letting it unfold and trust in the process of the unfolding, you know, um, and to kind of have a, maybe have a, a, a vague plan in mind of where you might want to take things, but also not being so rigid. So you don't close off opportunity to kind of meander down another path. And I, maybe I, that's maybe more of how I feel about my life and the way in which I do things and I meander down paths and <laughs> come back and do other things. So there could be something more broadly kind of going on there. Um, but yeah. And, and I mean, even in this conversation that we're having right now, like I, I don't, I know we're going to go somewhere. I know we're going to encounter something interesting. We're going to uncover something together, but I don't actually, I've not prepared anything. I mean, I have a blank page here. Right. This is my interview <laughs> preparation for you, James. Oh, good. I hate to break the, um, the illusion of preparation and, <laughs> and research, but quite frankly, it's just a piece of paper. Well, look, you know, um, it's, it's, the other thing is if we, if we don't like where we, where the conversation goes, we can just try again next week. Yeah. Know? We can always do that. Um, just as a brief side note, I, 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 my journey involves getting locking a cat in uh, the scullery <laughs> because he's just being so annoying. I'm sure you've heard him. He's just screaming Yes, at I me. have been hearing. Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah no, you him. go and do that. Yeah, you go and do that. Second. James Jackson, thank you for joining me on the Storymakers Institute today. It was great to chat. Hell's Gates. 10th to the 12th of August. If you would like to know more about that, Geelong Art Centre is where you need to go for uh, buying tickets, geelongartcentre.org.au, 10th to the 12th of August. And if you want to live stream the show from wherever you are around the world, um, you need to go to the Australian Digital Concert Hall, buy tickets through there. You can buy tickets through the Australian Digital Concert Hall, australiandigitalconcerthall.com. The Storymakers Institute is created on Wadawurrung country. Keep the show sustainable and strong by becoming a subscriber on Substack today. With podcast episodes, written analysis and dispatches on storymaking straight to your inbox and Substack app feed. Visit thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com for all the details with annual, monthly, zero-cost and gift subscriptions available. And if you're a free subscriber, make a zero-cost contribution to the show by leaving us a star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and spread the word about the show. We'd be most grateful. Thanks to Dom Evans on post-production. I'm Joel Carnegie. I'll catch you next time.